Good morning, everybody. Okay, Bakar Tov, welcome back. It is great to be learning. It's been two weeks now. It's been Purim. Let's get back into learning. This is, I, I, I got to tell you, I have to, this is, I'm biased. I'm really excited about this year. Uh, um, so uh, so let's, let's, um, let's begin. I'd like to thank uh, Mark and Rina Costell for sponsoring for an anniversary. Many, many more in Gesundheit and happiness. Um, they tell a story about a, uh, about a young man who is living in the second half of the, 18, of the 1800s and he lives in this very small town, very little, very little village out in the boondocks <coughs> and one day he decides that he's going to go to the big city as a mission so you know he, take, he takes the wagon to the train station and the trains are very new and he goes into the big city and he spends a day or two then he comes back and everybody in the town comes back because he's a celebrity because he wants to, you know, what, what's going on in the big city. And he tells them this most unbelievable thing. And everybody's crowding around. You can imagine this. So the scene is in the evening. And everybody's coming ra- crowding around him in the, in the center of the, of, of the town. And he's standing on a little crate. And he explains to everybody that there's this unbelievable thing there. That when he came back from the big city, there's this, there's this special thing that where you hold one thing. And there's just a wire connecting that thing to another thing which... Looks a little bit like a banana, and if you speak into the one, you can actually hear from the other one. And the people are, are astounded that this is the, this is possible. And they say, "Well, can't they hear each other in the same room? No, they're in different rooms." But there's just one wire connecting these things, and everybody can't believe it. And uh, they say, How, "How's that possible? How's it works?" So he says, "Well, actually, I'll tell you the truth." He says, "It's not one wire. There are two wires connecting it." And everybody goes, "Ah." Oh. <laughs> <laughs> And sometimes, sometimes that's where our way of understanding technology is. There's two wires. Ah, now we understand how electricity works. So in, in order to understand the halachic history, it's important also to understand just the basic history of the development of electricity to understand what it really is in order to be able to understand the reaction of halacha to it or, or the, perhaps of Jewish life to it because uh, uh, electricity was not something that was dealt with predominantly at the times of the Gemara. But we're going to see the most fascinating, really just mind-blowing, expri- um, we'll call it reflection, of halacha onto this new, the advent of this new idea called electricity. So we're going to start at the beginning. We're going to do a very brief survey of electricity itself. What actually put uh, um, me onto this topic was, um, a week ago, my, my mother-in-law um, gave me a book to read um, called Empires of Light, which is a very, very beautifully written book. We've actually been doing a little bit together, we've been doing a little research on, this is actually about um, the, the uh, intellectual battle between Westinghouse and Tesla and Edison <coughs> and the development of, of, uh, of, um, of AC versus DC and, and the control, the vying for control of electricity in the new world. Really a fascinating book. But at the beginning, and I could, barely could put this down, this is um, at the beginning of the book, he goes through a very interesting survey. I just want to share with you just some of the brief, uh, the brief highlights of the history of electricity, and then we can have an appreciation of the history of, the, of our sages as they responded to it. So, you know, at the beginning, it's interesting, interesting enough, at the beginning, we, there was always this notion that people understood what electricity was. There was something strange going on, and it all started with amber, actually. Now, amber is a very, important, um, a very important material, not just because it makes beautiful trinkets and because for those who want to create, recreate Jurassic Park, but actually, at the end of the day, amber has an interesting property that when rubbed, what happens is that, that people noticed that it would attract or repel certain, uh, certain light substances. So, let's say you rubbed amber, people knew this, that, it would now, uh, that when it was put near feathers, feathers would drift away or, dr- or drift towards amber. So, they knew that something strange was going on. In fact, 
I mean, 600 before Common Era, um, the Greeks already ex had, a, had a whole explanation for it. There's a, one of the Greek mythologies, um, um, mythological um, stories talks about the son of Apollo, whose name is uh, Phaeton, who asks to use his father's chariot, and he goes in the, I mean, and he, he ascends in his father's chariot, but the, but the horses know that Phaeton is only a young man, so they, they, they it takes him across the, the countryside, burning everywhere they went, and they say that's why Libya turned from, a, from an oasis to a desert, and at this point in time, um, Jupiter, who's one of the gods, becomes enraged and, um, and, decides, to, uh, and decides to kill Phaeton. And uh, he kills this young, this young boy who falls from the chariot to the ground. And, um, and the sister of, um, of Phaeton, who is um, the name of um, Heladias, um, picks, pick, picks him up and mourns for their, for their lost brother. And in fact, as a gift, they were, they, were, they were given, they were turned into pine trees, and their tears turned into amber which is uh, again fossilized later on. And this is the Greeks, I mean the Greeks understood that these were almost like the, they attributed to tears of the gods because they understood there was something very unusual about, uh, about uh, amber. But they didn't, there was nothing to really do with it. Meaning, okay, it had this unusual property, but for essentially a thousand years, no, two thousand years, nothing was really done with amber. Until a little later. We're talking now in the, really, uh, in the, in the 1500s, we have an individual, his name is William Gilbert, who happens to be the Queen's physician. Uh, and this, this, uh, he was Queen Elizabeth's um, physician, and he started doing a little bit of work. And he found out an interesting thing. This is, an, this is actually a picture of, um, of William Gilbert giving a demonstration to, um, to, to Queen Elizabeth and around the table with some very important individuals, you know, so Walter Raleigh. We're talking at a very powerful time. And he is, he, what he started realizing was that he started realizing that if you, if you rubbed amber and other materials as well, there was this charge that they had, and he couldn't really understand what it was. He, he actually had an interesting uh, description of it. He called it the electric, the electric effluvia. So he believed that there was an invisible liquid substance which was being transferred when rubbed on amber or, or these other materials. It might differ much from air, and as, um, and as air is the Earth's effluvium, so electri electric bodies have their own distinctive effluvia, and each peculiar effluvium has its own individual power of leading to union, its own movement to its origin, to, uh, to its fount, to the body emitting the effluvium. So now, meaning, and he wrote a book, De Magnete, he did a lot of work with magnets, very interesting individual. But again, he, he was playing with what had been known, and he started, and he started trying to um, make a, a rigid system of what this is. So his suggestion was he had no idea what electricity or electrons were at this point in time, but he suggested that there was a substance which was being transferred when, when rubbing these substances. Um, interestingly enough, he was actually the first person to talk about the word electron, right? The electron is actually the, the translation of the word amber. Okay, so that's where, the, that's, that, that's where um, it originates from. He was the first person to use this. It's the Greek word for, for, for amber. And he did a number of experiments to, to, to not just random feathers, but other materials as well, to be able to find out that there was something, something was going on and he couldn't really work out what it was. Um, up to till this point, really, things uh, sort of stayed in motion until, you know, maybe, maybe, um, the beginning of the 17th century. And we have uh, one of the uh, very unusual individuals who was involved was a person by, by the name of Otto von Guernica. He was a, actually the mayor of a particular town in Germany. He, was, he spent a lot of his time actually rebuilding the, the town after, after it was destroyed by the Swedes. And uh, he uh, lived a very long, a long life, and he found something interesting. When you don't know what's going on, this is what we find in science, it's interesting. When you don't know what's going on, and you're just trying to work out what's happening, so what do we do? Meaning, he, we know that amber is un, has unusual properties. So what, do, what, 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 what can you do? You, you don't know what the theory is. 
So what would people do? Experiment. So that people experiment. So so if you don't know what, how it works or what's making First it do, so so people so before you're creating theories, people had no theories at this point in time. They just did more of the same thing. So what he thought is, let me do more of the same thing. So if amber it has these unusual properties when rubbed, what should we do? Rub it more, right? So that's what he, he did. So he, he, what he did was he created a sort of a machine where he could roll a ball. I, I believe it was of some sort of type of metal that he used. And he rolled the ball a lot in, the, in, um, in this particular machine, in the figure, in figure, uh, in figure five. And he would carry around this ball, and more for entertainment purposes, actually, he would push feathers around the room and so give, give guests sparks. And meaning to say he was just doing the same thing, but he just did it on a more effective basis. So he rubbed it more. He didn't know what was going on, but he did it more for an uh, entertainment purpose over here than, more for, than a philosophical science quest um, project. But what was interesting was, as opposed to just a person taking silk and rubbing glass or other materials, he actually started rubbing it on a more consistent basis. Similarly, um, we have an individual who um, Francis Hawkeby, sometimes spelled differently with the, like the word hawk um, with a WK as well. So um, Francis Hawkeby also naturally lived in England. He was the curator um, of instruments in the Royal Society. And he, uh, what he did was he, or he did a similar thing to this, um, this gentleman Otto. And he actually created this machine over here, which um, if you go to science fairs, you'll see this machine still in use, where they would crank the bottom where there would be a leather strap which would rub against a ball at the top. So a very similar kind of, a very <coughs> similar kind of um, thing to um, Mr. Otto over here. And what you, what you would do is there would be a constant rubbing of this ball, which would generate a lot of static electricity. Now, he didn't know, again, what it was, but what he was doing was he was essentially mass-producing that charge which was to be found on these, uh, on these materials. So this is what he, um, his, his addition to this was, a, was this particular machine. As you can see, it would be rubbed at the top when, it, when the ball was spinning. Again, so it would have charge, and you could diffuse this charge, and it would send sparks through, um, through various elements. Um, he, he was doing this, again, on a more practical level, more than a philosophical trying to understand level. That was the, um, Francis Hawkeby's contribution. Again, this is already in the late 1600s. We find around the same time an individual called Stephen Gray. Stephen Gray, Stephen Gray was a regular pedestrian, actually. He was a, a, a son of a family of dyers, very regular individual. And he just became very interested in, um, in science. And what he started doing was he started doing a lot of experiments. He, he started experimenting with, um, with um, what, what we know today as to be insulators or conductors. So he knew that there were certain substances if you rubbed using this machine that would transmit charge and certain substances which wouldn't, wouldn't transmit charge. So he understood that there were certain things called insulators which don't, that don't work and certain things which do work. And he wanted to see how long he could do it. And in fact, through his experimentation, you can see on the right, he managed to be able to see that charge could be transmitted for over hundreds of feet through certain conduct. He realized that, that copper, he realized that certain metals conducted the electricity, conducted this charge more than other ones. You could receive a shock at the end. One of his famous experiments was, um, was what's called the electrified boy. Um, and what they did was, this is interesting, this became, you know, at this point in time, people had no idea what was going on. So just using whatever the experimental um, apparatus was at the time, and a lot of people started using it for um, the, these shocks or this, or, or, or this, or, or this um, attraction um, um, through electricity for either medical um, purposes um, to cure things or as inter for entertainment purposes. So well, here's an example of what was used. What they did was they, the boy was actually held up and, um, and covered in, uh, in insulation. So meaning to say that he was being held in such a way that he's not grounded. And then he was attached to a, he was attached, the rod is, given, um, is, produced, is a rod which is attached to, to charge. And what happened, there'll be three dishes of these um, copper 
um, <clears throat> of copper-like leaves, very light copper leaves. And what we found is that when, when he held a rod in his hand, or by his face, or by his hand, the, they would attract these leaves. So as he would be um, um, elevated um, um, over here, by, by the way, we hope that most of the boys did not die. Um, <laughs> um, so the, he would attract, he would attract charge. Where, um, where some of these, um, these leaves would fly up to his face, which is a, an exposed area, his hand or this rod, which is an indica indication that, of course, the human body as well is a conductor. Right now, that, that was part of his experimentation. This is more of a public view of it. I remember that when I was in, uh, in maybe middle school or high school, we went to a science fair, and when I used some of these machines, like the more sophisticated machines of, the, of um, Francis Hawkeby, they have these uh, um, static, static generation machines where they actually have where they have a conveyor belt, which is br bringing charge to a metal ball, that um, you can have, um, you can have human. Be let's say you have a chain of people all touching it in a chain, and the moment you let go, there's char the char the, the circuit's broken, and and, the, and there's these huge sh shocks which are. So people knew that there was something happening. They knew they could build up charge. They knew they could send it. They, and, and now we started getting the idea that this could go through longer longer substances and certain substances yes, certain substances no. And this is one example of just a sort of a, a parody of almost how far it went. At this point in time, people still didn't know what it was. You couldn't maintain charge. You couldn't use charge necessarily, but you could see what it did. You could transfer it to one uh, from one item to another, but at this point in time, it wasn't very useful. It was just more of an entertainment level. Until actually, an interesting time, we have a, 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 in the Netherlands we have Professor Pieter van Muschenbroek. And so, um, by the way, just for those of you who, who travel every day to work on, in the car, I know that Mr. Van Veek is turning over in his grave every time the news, eight minutes, tells dogs about the Van Wyck. His name was not Van Wyck. His name was Van Veek. That's how you pronounce it in, uh, in Dutch. Okay, so Professor Peter Van, right? That's not Van. That's Van Moosenbroek. Okay? That's how, that's how it's pronounced in, in Dutch. Um, nonetheless, I, I, coming from South Africa, where one of the languages of Afrikaans, which is a subset of, of Dutch, there are certain things that are important to, to set the record right on. The, the news presenters are still not listening, but nonetheless, we try. Um, so... What happened was actually by mistake, and this is how a lot of things were invented, is by mistake, is a, a, a lab assistant made a mistake that when he was using one of these machines, so again, here's, here's the machine where they were, they, were, they, were, they were building up charge, and um, what happened was they touched, uh, he touched a, a wire which is extended from a, 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 a jar of water. And, um, and what happened was is that he by mistake touched that wire afterwards and, um, and received... What he didn't understand um, to be an electric shock, and I actually just want to just to, to quote for you. I want to I want to quote for you what he said about this about this experience. <laughs> it's really unbelievable. He says he sent a letter to Paris and he said a new but terrible experience which I advise you never to try yourself, <laughs> nor would I who have experienced it and survived by the grace of God do it again for all the kingdom in France. Okay, so he, he understood that something something was uh, something went wrong over here. And this became the first realization that charge, whatever this thing is, could actually be stored. Up till now, it was discharged all the time. As it was built up, it was being discharged until it found a, 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 um, another um, conductor. What happened was, is was the this was now la labeled as what's called Leyden jars. It was discovered in the town of Leyden, in the University of Leyden. And, um, and these Leyden jars became the first way that people realized that static electricity could be stored for a moment and then when touched afterwards, that could even last for a few days depending on the insulation. You touch it again, and the charge was released in one snap, and the, to a very powerful um, degree. In fact, la la later experimentation was taken again. We're in the, now we're in the beginning of the, um, of the 
18th century, a lot of it, this was really taken to commercial use. There was one particular, um, there was one particular individual in Paris who, um, what, uh, for experimentation purposes, what he did was he took a group of soldiers, about 150 soldiers, and he put them in a circle holding hands, and on and the one hand he used a Leyden jar, because now you could use the charge, you didn't have to have the machine building it up at the same time, and at the same moment, all of them jumped in the air, and people thought it was very entertaining because it was, uh, they did it exactly the same moment. Why? Because electrons travel at the speed of? Light. So it means that they all receive the shock at the exact same moment. And people, you know, this was, this was a, uh, people did do this again for all the kingdom in France. And this became very exciting and people made bigger and bigger laden jars and bigger and bigger charges to see what they could actually do over here. Right, so again, we don't know what we're doing, but we're just doing more of it and bigger, on, on a bigger level at this point in time to try to, do, try to use this. The next person in who's interesting to us is Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin across the sea over here. Now notice that, interestingly enough, a lot of his inventing skills came before the Civil War, now before the, the War of Independence, right? So, meaning he was a very interesting individual, very interested in life. Grew up as, a, a, as one of many children, was not given a very much formal education past the age of 12, but was a very curious soul. And besides write, uh, writing the Almac, he was, uh, also did a lot of interesting experimentation with Leyden jars. So he knew about this technology from across the sea, and he, and he had these Leyden jars and he tried using them in different ways. And he was one of the first people, although it was actually um, William Gilbert himself suggested this, but he himself made the suggestion that perhaps the Leyden jar is an expression of what is actually going on on a good rainy day when you see... Lightning, right? So you realize that there must be something about the spark that's coming from the sky downwards from what's the spark that's coming out of the leaden jar into your finger. Um, so he, uh, so he, there was a famous experiment, as, as all those Ameri who study American history know, where he went out on a, on, a, on, a, on a stormy day into the field and he took, a, he took a cart. And if you can see at the bottom of the picture over here, that is a leaden jar. What he was trying to do, the cart was attached by a silk string, which was, of course, was, was um, a conductor. And he was using it to be able to take the charge from the skies into the Leyden jar. That's what he wanted to do. Right? I mean, he felt that if there was a way to get the charge out of the skies, he could put it in the Leyden jar like we do from one of those machines. That was, his, that was the brilliance of his idea. Thank goodness for American history that there was no lightning that day. Because <laughs> if there was lightning, as you could see, he was holding onto that string. <laughs> All that would be left of, of Benjamin Franklin would be the hat. So <laughs> there's... So at this point in time, he was very lucky with his, his boy. It happened to be a stormy day. There was a lot of charge in the air. And he found the laden jar became charged. But thank God there was no lightning. So he was able to take charge from the heavens, essentially. He was called the Prometheus. Being able to take the, you know, steal the, the fire from the heavens by this, by this experiment. In, in, uh, you know, immortalized by his experiment. There's a beautiful picture of, of him and pulling down the charge from the heavens. You know, there's the, the, you know, immortalized almost like godlike. You know, Benjamin Franklin. It was interesting that he wrote down a lot of his notes. And he actually suggested a very useful machine uh, or invention, which is called, the top of the house, that's called a? Lightning. Lightning, lightning conductor. You know, in those days when there were storms, and there were lightning storms, buildings and industries and houses got destroyed by lightning. So his suggestion was that if you put up a metal rod at the top, which would be grounded, what it would do is it would attract the lightning and ground the lightning, thereby saving the building. Nobody wanted to try that. Um, so nobody in America actually tried that, but during his lifetime, in fact, an experimentation, experiment was done in France, in Paris, where they did this, they put up Benjamin Franklin's rods, they were all kind of scratching their heads, because remember, this was like, you know, this is somebody living in the colonies, who really, you know, like, uh, you know, no, no formal education, they were really surprised that anybody had come up with anything of, of use from across the sea, but nonetheless, they tried it, and they were actually able to, to, to actually see during a lightning storm, gathering charge through these lightning conductors, which made Benjamin Franklin world famous. 
Um, um, and this is actually on his own house, allegedly, where he put up lightning conductors. And still to today, we have lightning conductors because uh, the realization that they would actually absorb the charge and ground it, making it safe to be, uh, to be around it. So nonetheless, this is a very interesting contribution of the, of the realization of what's going on naturally and what we're doing to be the same process. We go a little further. Very, very briefly, we're going to just... Um, Luigi Galve uh, Galvani is a... Uh, is a very interesting individual who, when doing experimentation, realized, and this is, you can see on the table, is the same picture, they realized when he was doing dissection that if you touched a charged rod to frogs' legs, the frogs' legs started moving. With the and this became the realization that, in fact, a lot, of the, a lot of the coordination in the human body is through electric charges. Right? And this became a very interesting different field in, uh, in the notion of electricity. That electricity is not just outside, it's actually what's going on in our bodies as well. And um, there's a lot of interesting experimentation he did. I'm not going to get into him indiv individually because it's not as important to us for electricity. But we meet an individual who's his contemporary, Asandra Volta of Pavia. And, uh, Pavia. and he was an interesting individual because he actually disputed Galvini in many ways. And he, he believed that it was an in incorrect experimentation. He was not a very friendly-looking individual. He spent most of the first half of his life debating Galvini, which was really, uh, you know, it was a great debate and lots of terrible words thrown in both directions. Uh, nonetheless, um, what was more important that he invented was afterwards. And he, what he did was he said the following. He realized, this is what's called a pile of volta. So he said, if I put three things together, if I put um, zinc and copper and I put a little bit of silk, a, a wet silk with salt water in between them, and I put them into a pile, he realized the most unbelievable thing. And that is, is that there was electricity flowing from the top to the bottom of it. He now, he didn't understand why this was. He couldn't understand fully why this was, but he created what essentially is called the first battery. battery. This is the first battery that Volta came in. And of course, his name was immortalized with volts. Is that that's, that's why we call them volts. And this is an experiment where he's showing the sparks that come out of that, which became the first movement from static electricity to human-made generated Electricity, where now we see that there's actually this movement of electrons through reaction. He doesn't understand why it was going on. Interesting thing to note about him is once he got all his laurels and his awards and his and his um, and his um, recognition, he stopped inventing. You know, he, he rested on his laurels, and that was it. That he felt that was his contribution to society, and it was a very big contribution. Let's not get it wrong, but it was just interesting. He never really continued there afterwards um, until Sir Humphrey, Humphrey Davies. Yeah, I'm a very interesting individual, young, young, charismatic, um, uh, you know, handsome, very interesting individual who rose to fame very, very fast. He, what he did was he started, again, if you don't know what's going on, what you start doing is you do more of it, right? So he started making many volters, many volta, uh, volta, uh, volta piles, so many, many batteries. He made them bigger and bigger, and he realized that what was going, actually going on in the voltage pile, uh, the volta pile was actually a chemical reaction. What was, the, uh, what was doing was that there was electrons. He didn't understand the word electron, but this reaction was emitting electrons which were circulating, and he started realizing that you could actually use it for electrolysis, which means that you could put it into, into a substance and thereby separate the substance. Right? So you could separate um, complex mo um, molecular structures into basic elements, and he started develop, discovering elements. So Humphrey Davies was the person who started discovering that you could actually, new elements, beryllium, every, all these new metals were through electrolysis where you reverse the process of Volta. Very fascinating. One of the, the most important things that for our purposes over here is the creation of what's called the first carbon arc lamp, where you realize that if you had enough charge, which is human generated. Now, you don't need any static machines anymore because you could create these volta, volta piles. You could put two pieces of carbon close to each other, and as they would burn out, they'd be emitted a huge arc of light. And of course, this is very important because now, this is the way maybe to conquer darkness. I mean, the day ended, basically, when it became dark. 
And now slowly there became the re realization that if you could harness these volta piles and use sufficiently large amounts of electricity using carbon, you could actually burn them in a way that created what was called an arc light. Um, I'm sorry, there's a whole question still in because there's just a lot of material. And um, he started realizing using these things called arc light, they, they weren't very pleasant to look at, they were very, very, very bright. And in fact, they weren't used in homes, they couldn't be used in homes, they were too powerful, they need too much power, too expensive. But they started using these now in public squares afterwards. So for instance, he has actually a picture of the arc lights which were used on the, um, later on in the Eiffel Tower. So arc lights started being used, these were actually even still used as um, spotlights during war. Right, so these, and in, in, in towns, in certain towns in America, they started using arc lights. They made towers in the city, of the, the center of town, and they started using, the, uh, using current to generate this very powerful arc light, which would illuminate. Was, people found it very, very glaring to the eye, because the, this is the first way that, the, essentially the first, forgive, forgive us, Edison, the first light bulb. His, one of the most important things that, that Sir Humphrey Davies did, most people argued, is to hire an assistant called Michael Faraday. Michael Faraday was a very simple boy. He was working in a leather shop, didn't get any formal education, came to one of Sir Humphrey's public dis discourses, was so incredibly inspired by this that he wrote notes and he bound it in a leather book and he sent it to Sir Humphrey Davies, who, who hired him. And Michael Faraday himself did a lot of inventing. Um, way beyond the scope of, of, of any amount of time to describe how much he did. He used to give Christmas lectures where he would talk to the public about his inventions. A very, very, very powerful and recognized person. He started realizing that, in fact, there was a connection between magnetism and current. And this is, this is beyond the scope of what we're going to be talking about over here. But he realized that when you connected a battery through an electromagnet, what happened was the galvanometer, which would, be, uh, which would measure current, would, would, would spring just that, that second. And he realized that that magnetism affected current, which of course led into what, was, what is essentially the first, the first dynamo. I took a copper ring, which was now by alternating, um, used, used with, a, with a magnet, when moved around, would generate current. This is very important because now this became, not only do you, could you create current through batteries essentially, but now you could create current through movement. Right? And this is very important because this could be reversed and you could create engines. Right, this, this, this became the, he, he, the, um, the first steps towards the usefulness. When asked about this, he said, he, he was asked, you know, what is the use of this, Mr. Faraday, Professor Faraday? And he said, his response was, what is the use of an infant? That was his, that was his response. The point is, is that, make it useful. He was so involved in the philosophy of trying to understand and, 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 and extend the parameters of it, he wasn't really interested in what to do with it. That became the next level people like, of course, Thomas Edison. We skipped a number of people in between who in Menlo Park, and this is his laboratory in Menlo Park in New Jersey, started experimenting, and there was a race. There was a very, very fast race on this. Um, and um, he created, of course, as we know, the first light bulb where he was able to use um, electricity on a more, we'll call it on a tenth of the level of the arc lights, which are being used outside on a level, on a commercial level, which is cheaper and, and more radiant or, or, or uh, I'm just... Um, um, a simpler light um, which was able to be used in homes and of course this became the race for the power of electricity at the, at the turn of the 19th century, or the 20th century. Um, the, so this is, this is just sort of a background of what started off as realiza realization that there was something funny happening with amber to actually human generated current to the use of human generated current. What, the, what this means to say is to us, is let, let, if we use it today, so let's say you go into the science lab, this is the most basic circuit you can have where you'll have a cell, which you'll have a battery, which is essentially um, the chemical reactions going on, like Volta talked about, and it is connected to a light bulb. And here you have a switch which enables the, the current in a, in a schematic diagram. Of course, we have the switch. The battery is negative, is the longer line, positive on the, on the uh, sorry, the way around, negative and positive. 
and then we have a resistor. A light bulb essentially is a resistor, which is a, a, a material which allows the electrons to go through, but is hard for the electrons to go through, which means to say that in order to do it, there's a lot of energy emitted. That energy is emitted in the form of heat and light, and that's useful to us. Right, so it means that we're just essentially making an obstacle course for that electron to go through when closing the switch. And now the question is, now that we have a little more than just two wires, that's how it works, the question is, is what, what do we do now at the turn of the 20th century, the late 1800s, what, what, how do we relate to this in halacha? That's the question that we have over here. Because, this, because this, is, this, is, this is what's happening over here. This is, it's becoming more commercialized. As you can see, up till now, it really wasn't used. It was more experimental. It had really nothing to do. Unless you wanted to go for entertainment, unless you wanted to go to some doctor who said they would cure you via shock therapy, there was nothing that was really being used until the moment that we really started seeing light and electricity being used in the telegraph, the telephone, and various other instruments which were appearing at the end of the 1800s. So here's, here's, here's our, uh, our movement. It uh, happens to be, um, I remember a very interesting story when I, was in, when I was in D.C., there was a very wonderful individual, really wonderful person. And we were walking back on a Friday night, and he happened to be related to a particular far-out Rav in Eretz Yisrael from many generations back. You probably don't know the name of, because he was not, he was not ma mainstream, and he, he thought that electricity was not a problem on Shabbos. And uh, basically, this individual argued to me. Um, he, said, um, he said, you know, I know that not in my lifetime, but maybe in, the, in my children's or my grandchildren's lifetime, electricity will become water on Shabbos. He says, because right now the only reason that it is also is because uh, Herschel Schachter lives on the first floor apartment. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, you know, that's a very interesting theory as to the development of halacha. Uh, <laughs> but I don't believe that the reason why electricity is also today is because Rabbi Herschel Schachter lives on the first floor apartment. It happens to be he doesn't. Um, <laughs> there's definitely stairs up to, to Rabbi Schachter's apartment. And Rabbi Schachter is not the person sitting there with the keys to all of Shabbos I'm sitting there, you know, chuckling and, um, and, uh, and uh, holding the power over the rest of the world who's suffering terribly because of it. What we need to do is understand that we've we looked at a lot of very wise people up till now. People who are really inventors and incredibly wise people. But now we're going to look at people who come from a different type of wisdom. We're going to talk about people who, first of all, for the most part, we're not searching for their titles. A lot of these people, with the exception of maybe Michael Faraday, a lot of these people were very excited about the titles they were getting as well. Uh, we're going to go into another er area of people who are chachamim, who are looking to, to be able to preserve as opposed to invent. And we're going to try to understand how that works. So it reminds me of the story on the plane, a very famous story, but it's really important just to, to, to just appreciate this. And that is, is that um, there was uh, once Rav Yaakov Kamenevsky was on an airplane, and you're sitting next to an individual who was... Um, who, um, who, um, who was an elderly man, all, a professor, and what happened was every, every few minutes, one of Rav Yaakov's grandchildren or children came to, to ask him if everything was all right. And the man said to him, he says, look, I'm a professor in university, he says, I can barely get my kids to write to me once a year. <laughs> and my grandkids, like, what do you, what's your secret? What do you do that they, come, uh, they always come to you? So he says, well, look, he says, look, there's a, a big difference. He says, you, you come from a camp which believes in evolution, which means to say that every generation, every next generation is one step more advanced than the previous generation. You're one step further than uh, from the apes. So therefore, every generation thinks they're better, and they have really no use, necessarily, for the previous generation. Whereas I come from a tradition that every generation, we're one generation further from Sinai. And so therefore, every generation back is one link closer and requires so much more respect to be connected back to that. And this is where you see a little bit of, the, uh, of this happening over here. Here we're going to go back, and what I'd like to do is, I'm not going to go through the, the, all the mechanics, but just some of the basic principles at hand, that we go back and we reach back into the past to use axioms of the past to understand the present. The Gomorrah was not talking about electricity at all. But the Gomorrah's language and the vehicles of what it was expressing 
are in fact the tools for us to understand what we do today. Meaning they gave us the tools, the axioms, the vehicles, and the question is can we apply them? So here we go. We're going to talk about this in three ways. Section one is going to be electricity doing malacha. So what happens if, in the old days, I used to have to pull out a saw, right? So if I wanted to cut wood, which is a malacha on Shabbos, right? So if I'm going to cut and build, um, um, I, use, I have to use a saw. <laughs> what happens if electricity, when, let's forget the mechanics of electricity for a moment. What happens if electricity is simply doing the same activity? So now I have a power saw, right? Not to be handled without close adult supervision. Okay, so now instead, of, and let's not think about what elect electricity, you know, like electricity per se. What about if electricity does the same thing? Is my flicking the switch on that electric saw the same as my moving my hand backwards and forwards when sawing? That's the first level we're going to have to, to have to discuss. So, of course, when, when the saw is cutting the wood, that's what, that's what we're talking about. Is my holding the saw to cut the wood the same as my using my power? Right, am I using my physical effort to exert or where I'm pushing this button? Is that the same thing? Do you say maybe it's a grammar? Is it a cause or not? So here's, here's how we go. The person who discusses Rav Chaim Oizer Grodzinski, that I've based in, in Vilna, Lithuania, one of the leaders of the previous generation, who goes to a Gomorrah in Sanhedrin. The Gomorrah in Sanhedrin says the following. Here we are. This is a very interesting Gomorrah. This daf is really fascinating. This is about causal, uh, cause and effect. The Gomorrah says, Potter. So what happens is if is, is that there are two individuals, Reuven and Shimon. Reuven shoots an arrow towards Shimon. Shimon's holding a tris, a, he's old, holding a shield. Okay? So what happens is that somebody else removes the shield from Shimon before the arrow unfortunately lands in between his eyes. Right? So, um, so what happens over here? The Gomorrah says, Potter, the individual who removes the shield, is exempt. He did not cause that damage. Because... The arrow was on the way already, meaning to say you've not done an action by removing, you're not culpable for removing the shield. So, Wadra, so, you know, this is right, I'm just going to, there's a lot of, a lot of information, I really want to just make sure I get, I get through it, okay? So, here, here we go. So, the first analysis over here is the following, <laughs> is, um, is, Ravo is saying, um, is, um, is, is, is suggesting that if you remove, if you remove something which is going to be in the way of a moving object, essentially, you are not culpable for what the moving object does. So, there are those who suggest, and this is the person who is the Sho'el, the person who asks your Chaimoiza says, maybe when you flick a switch, essentially, you have the movement of current, and by removing the blockage for that current, essentially, you're letting the current go. So, I mean, here's again, this is the, we're, not, we're not talking about arrows, right, but we're talking about vehicles in motion, items in motion. So, now you have current, you can't see it moving, you can see it at its effect, you know, something's moving in there. So maybe at the moment you remove the switch, you're allowing it to go. So it's not, your potter, it's not considered. Potter means to say that we're not talking about death now, but are you, is that action connected to you? So Rechaim Oiz, the person who asked Rechaim Oiz, says maybe it's not. Because over here, there's a disconnect, but you, you're, you're simply removing the barrier. So Rechaim Oiz responded and he says, you need to read a little low on the page in the same Gomorrah. The Gomorrah talks about the following case. Here's the Gomorrah. This is, this, every case in the Gomorrah here requires so much... In incredible depth. So the Gemara is like this. Amar Achinana Bar Yehud Mishmei Derav 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 Motza. Itmar it was said. Amar Papa. So remember just the names. We can't eliminate the names because that's part of the Gemara, right? You could start over here. It's not that's not the way the Gemara starts. The Gemara starts as part of the naming. So Haiman Dakafte Lechavre Veishkol Leibidko Demaya. So what happens is you have you have something you don't really like. So you tie them up in front of a sluice gate and you open up the sluice gate and that's the end of your uh, end of your en enemy. So what, what's the halacha? So you, in this case it says, Gire didehu, umichayev. By opening that sluice gate and drowning that poor individual who bothered you for so many years, you are essentially killing them. But you didn't kill them. What did you do? 
You open the sluice gate, right? So are you chayev? So it says you're chayev, and it talks about koyach rishon, koyach sheni. Very big debate in the Yad Ramah as to what that actually means. Very fascinating, uh, fascinating discussion. So it says Rav Chaim but these are on the same page. How does they work? In the one case, you're removing a shield, and the arrow is coming, and you're exempt. That that action is not related to you. In the other case, what's happening is, is you have a sluice gate. You're allowing the water out, and it drowns somebody, and that action is related to you. So which way is it? Meaning, uh, how much removing a barrier is considered or something which is moving? Again, here we have, well, in the one case, there's an arrow moving and there's a barrier which is the tress. In this case, we have water which is trying to run and you're removing the barrier and it is attributed to you. Again, we're trying to find the axioms to express ourselves in a switch with moving currents. So what, do you, what is the halach over here? So it says Rachaim Oizer, just to appreciate the beauty of this, Rachaim Oizer essentially says in this, in this halach, he says, are they not similar? So what he, is, he essentially argues, and again, without going into all the details, because we don't have the time to really get into the kishkas of this Rachaim Oizer, it's a beautiful description. Essentially, when I am removing the sluice gate, the water is right there. So essentially, I'm intentionally affecting the water itself. The water is waiting at the edge of the gate, and I am removing it, which allows the water through. When it comes to the chates, when it comes to the arrow being shot, I'm not affecting the arrow. Somebody else shot the arrow for, for, for all we care. You're simply affecting what's happening at the end. So in this case, says Rachaim Oizer, the case of electricity is more similar to this case, where what happens is at the, at the switch, at the edge of where that switch in the circuit diagram is, is the current is waiting to go. When you close it, it is like the water flowing through the sluice gate you open as opposed to removing something from an external force. Therefore, says Rav Chaim Oizer, we can safely ascertain that when a person is essentially switching on electricity to do for, uh, for something which is doing the same aloha as your hand would have been doing. So no longer am I sawing the wood, but I'm switching on the electricity which is making a machine turn, which is now sawing the wood. Essentially he is saying that that, that action is attributed to you because flicking the switch is allowing the water out, which is considered koyach rishon of the individual. This is, by the way, most of us take this for granted. But just understand how the sophisticated nuance of what Rachaim Oiz is saying over here and the use of 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 the of, of this of these axioms and more. If it's right, I'm going to hold for till the end because there's just so much over here. I'd love to hear the questions at the end. So this is this is the this is the first and most important thing. Oh yeah, we're not talking about just to appreciate this. We're not talking about electricity itself. We're talking about what electricity does. Does it relate back to you by flicking that switch? That's the first step over here in the process that we need to understand. And he says absolutely, this is considered koyakrisha, not grammar, and that's the first level of understanding. Stage number two. What happens if we're talking about not a saw? So we're not doing, performing a malacha using electricity in the force, um, as force. What happens if you're cooking or lighting? So if in the old days, if you wanted to cook or you wanted to light, what did you use? Use fire. In these days, what happens now, if instead of using fire, I now use a resistor, and the resistor is either going to emit light or heat, and that's very useful. So for instance, the elements in our stoves, the elements in incandescent light, light bulbs are essentially resistors, tungsten in a good old incandescent bulbs, where the current is going through, but because it is hard for electrons to get through, it is releasing energy in the form of light and heat. Right? But usually both. Okay, so now in, th in this case, is there a problem per se with that? Now, you see we've moved a little, bit, a, a little further away. We know that it's attributed to you. Meaning we know flicking the switch is attributed to you. But is there a melacha per se in the heating of this? Let's think about this just, just, just before we get any, any, any further. What is the difference between burning wood to cook and, uh, and using an element to cook? Just for a moment. What's, what's the difference in terms of what's happening with the substances? Right, so the wood is... What's the wood? The wood is a fuel. 
Right, the, f- the wood is the fuel of the fire. In electricity, is the, w- is the, ele- is the element the fuel? No. no. What happens is it, it, the element is it's actually, actually a conductor. And we're just using that conductor to produce the heat. So it is a little different, right? So the question is the following. We know that, the, that as we were about to read in this week's parasha, that's why we're talking about this week, parasha's Vayakel, You can't burn a fire. That's the one, one explicit time the Torah talks about in Israel Malach on Shabbos. Uh, why does it have Why is the, the Havara the only thing the Torah explicitly says why, um, um, and, and articulated? Nonetheless, so the question is, is we know that the, this, this is Asr. The question is, is that Havara? Is heating up metal Havara? And the Gemara does not talk about electricity, but it certainly does talk about heating up metal. Right? So here's an example. So let's take a few examples. The Gemara tells us the following. Gemara is in Yuma. Um, I, I, I lost the da for, for a second. This one says, Tanya Amar Rebbe Yehuda, Ashashia Sel Bazel, Hayamachamim Me'erev Yom Kippurim, Mematilim Tzoyich Tzoyinen, Kedesh Tofik Tzinosam. So what would happen is, the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur, we need to spend a lot of time in the mikveh, right? Because every time he would go, every time he would change the begotten, there was five changes, what would end up happening is, he'd have to go to the mikveh. Problem is, Yom Kippur is, it's starting to get a bit of a colder season, right? So that's a little, a, a, a little tough for the Kohen God. And in fact, the Kohen God was not allowed to vote on the Sanhedrin for when Rosh Chodesh was, because there was a, there was a cognitive bias towards, there was a cognitive bias towards, um, um, when Rosh Chodesh should fall, because every day towards the summer is one day better for the Kohen Gadol, right? So just to understand the, the psychology of this. Um, so the Gemara prohibited the Kohen Gadol from, uh, from being uh, as part of that voting. The Gemara tells us that what they would do is they would heat up metal pla- plates and they would throw them into the mikveh and in order to warm up the water for the Kohen Gadol to go and bathe to, on, on the mikveh on Yom, on Yom Kippurim. Okay, so, and the Gemara says, um, Aye, but surely you are smelting that metal, right? There is, a, there is a positive outcome. When you take burning hot metal and you put it into water, essentially you are, you are smelting that metal, and that's a good product, and that's essentially considered makibapatish on that metal. No, it wasn't that sufficiently hot, and Abayah says it's a, it's Dovashen Miskaven, and it's Mutter. Very interesting debate, which is Nogea, many halachas of Shabbos. Nonetheless, what do you see from this Gemara? Just an interesting thing. Are you allowed... Is it considered havara? Is it considered light, a, a burning to light up metal and heat metal in this Gemara? What do you think? No. Look carefully. When, 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 when are you able to do this? It says you're allowed to put the metal in on Yom Kippur, but when do you heat it up? On Erev Yom Kippur. Why are you heating up on Erev Yom Kippur? Ah, so says, so says the Magid Mishnah on the Ram who quotes this. He says, he says that in fact this is a, uh, a, a dinda raisa of, of heating up metal. That heating up metal is the same degree of isr as when it comes to, when it comes to fire. That's a very interesting assertion. Second time the Gemara quotes this, in Gemara and Shabbos, the Gemara says the following. The Gemara, the Gemara quotes in the second line, Ba'amar Shmuel, so what happens if you're walking down the road and you see a piece of metal which you know is burning hot? So it's a gacheles shamateches. So it's, not, it's a coal, an ember essentially, of metal. So the Gemara says that you can extinguish it. So you can push it in such a way that it goes into, it lands in a puddle. So it's not going to affect other people. But not a, 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 a ember of wood. Um, and the Gemara then talks about uh, uh, Rabbi Shimon and, um, and, uh, um, and uh, the, the debate between Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Yehuda about um, um, no, um, okay, so um, the Gemara over here is, is, has an interesting thing. So it says that apparently there's a difference between putting out an ember which is of wood and an ember which is of metal. 
right? It sounds like the ember of metal is allowed, but the ember of wood is not, because of, uh, of, of the Shalayazuku Barabim. This would suggest that extinguishing metal is, is on a lower level, it's probably an Isodorabonon at least, but on a lower level than extinguishing, right? Because the Gomorrah is telling us that you can only put out the one of metal. So this seems to throw, throw a wrench into it. The one Gomorrah seems to suggest that, that lighting it is considered melacha daraisa. Over here, putting it out may only be considered melacha midrabona, which, which can be sidestepped because of the need of the public, whereas that need doesn't, doesn't, isn't addressed when it comes to wood. That's what seems to be happening over here. <coughs> happens to be a very big debate. We're not going to go through the sources. Rashi says that, you know what? You know, there's, only, there's a technical reason over here as to why this is considered a, only an isodrabonon to extinguish a gacheles shelmateches, or a, a, a ember of metal. Here's a very simple reason. is because a, a, a gacheles shelmateches, shel, um, a metal ember, when it's extinguished, doesn't produce coal, which is of use. Okay? It means it wasn't a fuel. So it's not a fuel, therefore extinguishing it isn't the same degree of an isodaraisa, whereas if you extinguish wood, it would be. Which means, according to Rashi, lighting it would still be and Isodaraisa, a biblical prohibition of Havorah, of lighting and, and, and creating the heat in that, um, in that, um, in that conducting material. We're not going to go to the Rambam and the Ravid. The Rambam and the Ravid are, are wary about this. They think that maybe it's only, the Rambam suggests that it is only Asur Midaraisa if you're actually thinking that you want to be Mitzarifit, when you, you want to actually smelt that metal, but otherwise not. The Rambam, the, that's the Rambam's suggestion based on a complex argument of Melachoshein Tzarechalagufa. The Avni Nezer um, actually summarizes these three opinions. We're not going to go through that. La Halacha Lamais Roshlomo Zalman says in his um, seminal work, Minchas Shlomo, in his responsa, he, we're not going to go through the whole piece, but he essentially says that we assume that when it comes to lighting metal, meaning heating up metal, it is a, a biblical iser like the Gomorrah implies in Yuma, like the Ram seems to Paskin. And when it comes to extinguishing it, we consider it a Melacha Midrabonon. Okay, we consider Melacha Midrabana because, as Rashi said, there's no pecham, there's no coal which is, which is emitted at the end, or, as the Re'em, Rav Mizrahi suggests, a, co- a later contemporary of Rashi, suggests because that was not done in the Mishkan. There was smelting of metals in the Mishkan, but there was no extinguishing necessarily, so therefore it's not considered a biblical dar- a, a melacha. Why is this important to us to know the end of this debate, La Alacha? Is because so many things, light bulbs, all work on this, or this uh, technology. It happens to be not all light bulbs work the same. They weren't, weren't all created the same. The first, of course, is the incandescent light bulb. This is where you actually are heating up metal. I mean, when I'm flicking that switch and the incandescent light bulb is going on, I'm sending current through a resistor, the tungsten element, which is in the center of here. And, um, and what happens is that that is emitting heat and light when it goes through that. That is essentially the same as lighting up that metal plate, which is considered in Isur or Raisa. That is biblically pro- prohibited. When we read the Pasuk this week of Lois Savaru Eish, don't light fire, that includes not just wood, but metal as well as understood by the Poskim. And that would be an Isur or Raisa to switch on an incandescent light bulb. Very scary. Not all light bulbs are the same. There's halogens as well. Halogens ap- actually as well work based on, um, based on heat release as well. In fact, the halogens have sustained a much higher uh, temperature than in even an incandescent light bulb. Uh, most, most, most light bulbs today, you have to just check because not all of these are halogens. But nonetheless, this, is, this will be like a typical outdoor light. Um, would be halogens, very powerful light bulbs. Um, have the same isodorice as an incandescent light bulb. However, 
in the, as we see in this room, there's LED lights. In fact, not all the lights in this room are LEDs, but that row in the front over there are LEDs. They were actually we, the shul changed them from incandescent to LEDs. Much more energy, um, much more energy um, uh, um, efficient, and also uh, they last for many many years. They're much more expensive. Um, but if you look in the, in, the, in the top of them, not when they're on, you'll see, notice a, a bunch of LEDs. LEDs do not require heat to, to be lit, which means to say that they will not be considered a Havara issue. There's an Isra Drabon, we can get to in a second, but there's no Havara issue of the actual lighting the metal itself. Could Similarly, you know? fluorescent, most people say most of these lights in this room are fluorescent. Is there an Isra with fluorescent or not? So generally, if fluorescent is, is achieved where this current is sent through ga a gas, now that is, shouldn't be a problem because you're not actually lighting metal, however, there happens to be different types of fluorescence. There's called rapid starts and there's instant starts which are used today because in order to start the charge you need to actually have a, 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 a bulk of charge sent through the gas at the very beginning which is so some of the, the, the there were preheats, rapid starts and instant starts. Most of our, the older ones are rapid starts where there's, where there's a moment where, where the bulb is, uh, um, is building up uh, electrons and heating up an element in in the side, of the, uh, uh, the side of the fluorescent bulb which sends it through. That is also a problem because you're still heating up metal in the side. The difference between an instant on and a rapid start is how many prongs it has. Okay, just to denote the difference. Rapid starts have two prongs um, and instant start today does not. Instant start just uses a charge of electrons which goes through as opposed to actually heating up an element of metal inside. So rapid starts are actually uh, are considered an isodoraisa. Instant starts are considered an isodorabonon. Okay, so just interestingly enough. So this is, we've moved away from the saw, we've moved away from the electricity doing the malacha for you in your place and how that relates to you. We now move to the actual, where it heats up or it lights up something. Is that necessary? And we say, yes, it is. Extinguishing it may not be, which actually has the ramifications of the Let's go into the last, the last stage of here. Uh, folks, I'm sorry, we're going a little late. I just want to wrap up with this, this particular stage. What about section three? No malacha usage. So, for instance, what happens if the electricity is being used to switch on a fan or an air conditioning unit? Okay, so um, um, my, my, my children actually have a, a, a fan in the room. They call him Lasko because that's his name. Um, so uh, um, so um, uh, w w here, there's no lights and there's no malacha. You see what's going on over here? It's not, the electricity is not making the saw cut material, right? There's no lights involved in a regular fan. So now, is there a problem flicking the switch to allow a fan to move? After all, if I were to sit there all day swinging my hand round to make a blade go round and round and round, that's not Asura and Shabbos. Right? So what is about allowing the electricity to do it? Right? So is there a problem over here? You see this has moved away from the first two sections, right? It's not about doing a malacha, it's not about havara, it's now about simply this. That's the question. This is the most technical aspect, the most, this is the most, this is where we get down to the basis of what is electricity. So the first, the first uh, person to really talk about this is Rav Yitzchak Shmelkes, the base Yitzchak, in the, 18, in the late 1800s. Rav Shmelkes uh, uh, said a very interesting thing. Here's, here's where he, he starts this, uh, this discussion. He quotes the Gemara. The Gemara is in Beitzah on Daf Chof Gimel Amud Aleph, which says the following. So you can't allow, the, um, we're talking about um, um, scenting garments. So you can't allow your garments to be centered to place them in a place where they're going to absorb aroma on Yom Tov. Because that's considered moilid, you're now bringing a new entity into, now you, you, know, you have a centered garment, you introduce something new into the system, uh, and, uh, and the Gemara goes on to describe the, the more specifics. Rav Shmelkes actually suggests, um, what is, Rav Rashi tells us that, what is, what is going on? Midrabonon. Rashi says that when Moilid 
is like creating a new entity. So what you're doing is you have an item over here, which you now you're, you're, you're putting into a place where it gets fragranced. You're creating a new entity. You're introducing into it something new. Rav Shmelkes actually suggests, and this, by the way, this, this halacha of moilid is, this is one example, and it seems very distant to electricity, but the Gemara uses many other examples of where the, uh, the notion of the Isr, the Rabbonin of moilid um, is. And he, in fact, in his response in Beis Yitzchak, in the Hashemotos of Yardea, Chelek Beis, suggests that what happens with electricity is, is that there is a notion of moilid. What I'm doing is now, I'm introducing a new system. I'm putting, I'm allowing the current to move through a new system, and that is the Isr of Yahab Midrabon. Now, again, it seems frivolous in the way that I'm presenting, because we only have a few minutes over here to really go through, to the, go through the pages and pages of the basis, so it goes backwards and forwards in appreciating this. There is a debate in, um, among the Poiskim. If you can extend Moilid, can you say Moilid to new cases? Can I say that in, in new cases he believes yes, absolutely, and he gives a few rise for this. This is how he understands the Isser. So now, when I'm switching on the, the switch and the fan's moving, the notion of Moilid is that I am now Moilid a new circuit. I've now completed something new which wasn't in existence up till now, which he feels is an Isser Drabon. More, famous, uh, the, uh, more famously, uh, um, there's, uh, the Chazanish's opinion was the following. He looked at the following Gomorrah in Shabbos and Mimzai. Now, by the way, just so you should appreciate the brilliance of this, these are individuals who have Shas and Poiskim at their fingertips, and they're searching through their entire corpus of knowledge in Misora to understand if there are vehicles to express the same ideas which aren't here to be talked about, right? So here's, here's his example. He says, he talks about the following. This is a Brysa, a Tanatic, a tanatic teaching which says the following. So what happens if you have a, a menorah, you have a, a, a lamp, which is ta- you, you, you take to pieces, right? So I mean to say you, it's a traveling lamp, so you add arms to it um, when you need to, and you remove arms when you need to. So, you, so you'll, you'll sort of put in the metal rods as you need them. When you need more light, you'll take them out. Or when you when you don't need them. So is that so? If you do such a thing, the the Gemara tells us that your chayav chatas is considered a breach of Shabbos. What's the breach over here? What's what's going on? Building. 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 You are boyne, right? Um, actually, more specifically, it's makeh bapatish really midoraisa because there's no boy binyan bekelim. This is a detached from the ground. But makeh bapatish is what is completing this this item is through attaching these extra arms. The Gemara then says, however. So what happens if you used to be people who had lime-covered um, buildings, so they needed to have poles. So the, the, what happened is the builders would have these poles which could be, could be extended or contracted by adding on parts to them. So let's say they need to reach the higher reaches of the building to, uh, to paint or to lime coat. They would have you. They would put a few pieces of the pole together and use it for higher p- p- uh, parts. And then, when they needed it lower n- nearby them, they would take off a few of those uh, of those pieces and use it for below and um, and have a shorter pole. The question is: Is what happens if you are uh, you are putting them on or uh, you're putting uh, you're putting these pieces on? Is that a considered an Isra? And the Gemara says it's not awesome. It's a raisa, but it's uh, it's potter, meaning there's no biblical. Um, liability, but Asr, but it's still Asr Midrabonon. The Chazanish says, what's the difference between the two of these? Meaning, what's the difference between adding on branches onto a menorah, which is considered Binyan Bekelem, the Makeh Bapatish, Midorahisa, and when I'm adding on little elements to this longer stick which the, the painters use. Why are the two different from each other? So, the way he ex- um, expresses, the way he understands it, is, is that when I'm, when I'm using a, uh, when I'm using these two options he has, the Kone Ashel Sayadim, is something which is going to be 
taken apart and meaning extended and, and contracted all the time. So there's no constancy in, in its state, whereas a menorah is usually kept in that way for a longer period of time. Also, with a menorah, you push it in more, in more, more, more um, because it's used more permanently, when you put it in, you really push the pieces of metal in, so it's more of a permanent structure. Says the Chazanish, he feels in his, in his writings over here in Orachaim, he believes that in electricity, when a person has created a circuit, they've created an irrevertible, meaning to say it is a, a new entity which they've created. He feels that it is considered makibapatish de orisa. It is like the menorah where you're adding an element to, a, to, a, to an item. The circuit never existed before, was useless before, and now it's completely useful for the moment that you've closed that switch. And feels that it's been in Dorais. This is, this is revolutionary because what the Chazonish is essentially saying is this is a biblical prohibition as opposed to Rav Shmel because it says it's rabbinic. The most, fa- the, most, the most accepted opinion is Rav Yosef Eliyahu Henkin, who was the Poisek in America before Rav Moshe Feinstein. And he says the following. This is what Rav Shecht actually, uh, when I spoke to Rav Shecht, this is what Rav Shecht told, um, pointed out to me. He said the following. Tanya, this is a Gemara in Ksubos. Nachum Yishgal Yo'aymer, Sinor She'olaboy Kaskasin, Ma'achon Baragloi Betsin Abashabas Ve'ena Choyshesh. So the, what happens if you have a drain pipe? We all have this, right? You have a drain pipe on your roof and it's blocked. There's leaves in it. So what do you do? So in those days, they weren't just then. So what you could do is you could push the leaves through with your foot to allow the water to flow through. Because otherwise, when water accumulates, it's going to create damage and there's going to be insect infestation and there's going to be bad smells. So, you can, so the Gemara says you can do it with your foot on Shabbos, which means to say that, it, uh, that, that uh, as long as it's in private, um, for my science, it is considered, it is considered a mesakin, um, you're fixing the system, meaning the system is now, has a blockage, you don't have, there's no way for the system to work, your drainage system, so that is considered mesakin to fix it, but in the case of, of, of Pseida, where there's loss which is involved, you can do it with a shinui, because it's an isa de Rabbonin. Says Rav Shechter and Rav Henken, in the writings of Rav Henken, this is exactly what's going on in electricity. I have a system over here which is not working, meaning there's, there's no zerim, there's no current which is going through. I am now opening up the zerim to flow, and essentially by allowing that to do, I'm allowing the system to work. That's considered a masakin, or an extension of makevapatish midderabonon, which is what, what, what Rav Henken says. This is what is accepted lahalocha, so poiskim like Rav Avadio Yosef, Diane Weiss, Rav Shechter himself, suggest that in fact, that we assume that, that electricity on, is from those three opinions. Not moiled, not boine, but we assume is... Now, why is it important that it's Midorabonon and not, not Midoraisa? Some people have the, have the notion that, oh, it's only Midorabonon. I once heard Rav Shechter say, so, so I once, uh, many, many years ago when I was in, Ker- in Kerem Yavne, somebody was there and they asked, um, I think it was, actually it was Rav Feldman, he was relating one of Rav Shechter's points, and Rav Shechter said that it's, it's, it's an Midorabonon. So the person said, so does that mean, does that mean it's all right? So he says, no, you'll just go to a, a, a rabbinic Gehinnom. <laughs> you know? Equally as, equally as terrifying. Right, so the, the point is, is, it doesn't mean to say that it's, it's mutter. What it does mean to say is that in certain cases there can be exceptions. Here's the examples. In Rav Nuo's Sefer in Shmir Shabbos Kielchasar, written by a Talmud of Rosh Zalman Arbach, who argued on the Chazanish, but in the end had to relent to the Chazanish in deference, so it doesn't actually address it explicitly, but here's an example of where knowing it's Durabonin actually makes a difference. Example. Bimoisa Kayetz, so let's say in the very hot summer days, the people, you can't, you can't live, right? Um, you can tell a non-Jew to light, to, to switch on the fan or the, or the air conditioning. 
way too cold and it needs to be switched off. So you can't switch it off yourself because that's an Isra Drabonin of Misaken of, of Misaken Mane, right? You're, you're allowing the system to work. But Amir La'akum is a Drabonin. So if you have two Drabonins, the Makom Tsar, right? So now I have one Isra Drabonin is telling the Nakhri, the other Isra Drabonin is actually deactivating the electricity. In those cases, Shuvas Sushus, Makom Tsar is an example where it would be a Milter. If this was the Chazonesh, he would not allow that because it's an Isra Daraisa that doesn't help you. Another example. He says, He says, Making a phone call for a somebody who's sick and, and needing to call, um, making a call on Yom Tov, he feels. This is very interesting. Why? Um, I mean, um, is, is Mutter why? Because it is Shvus de Shvus in this case over here, Bamakam Sukhara Shema Sakana. So these are examples of where the fact that it's Drabonan allows leniencies in specific cases, uh, knowing that it's, um, it is it is Malachim Drabonan. I want to just come back to the full circle over here, and that is the following. This has been a long share, I appreciate everybody's endurance. Just to, just to appreciate this, uh, to, to conclude on this. We went through three sections of appreciating uh, the halacha. One is when the electricity is performing the malacha for us. One when it is actually heating up or lighting, which is an isodoraisa. And one when there's just electricity, which is flowing and, and creating some sort of reaction, which is useful, but not a malacha on Shabbos. And we talked about that being an isodrabonon. Part of this as well is that, you know, a lot, a lot of people like to have very technical, and today we live in, in, in days of details and answers and there's tables and graphs. We like to have all the answers very specific. Sometimes we also need to realize that when the Rabbana were looking at this, they weren't just looking at the phenomenon and the technicalities of if I can find a Gomorrah which uh, um, uh, relates to it. They're also looking at the bigger picture. You see, even though Yitzhak Shmelkas looked at um, electricity in the late 1800s, he didn't kind of imagine what life would be like today. And you think about it today. Imagine what our Shabbos would be like. Imagine what our Shabbos would be like if, in fact, electricity was mutter. You know, people, people, are, people are, 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 are dry. People can't live there so much. They have demands on them. Think about how many emails we get on a Motzeh Shabbos. We can't, we can't live anymore. Just, just to realize that when, when, when Shabbos was, the, the sanctity of Shabbos was preserved, not just from the technical perspective, from the sociological perspective as well, that's part of what was going on over here as well. And I think that's very important, not to downgrade that. I actually remember just to close with a story. I once had the opportunity of interviewing Ben Brafman for the Shabbos project a few years ago, which, which <coughs> we were involved with. And, um, and, uh, and Ben was talking about a, a particular individual. He had a client who was a very, very... Uh, not, um, well-known client in the music industry, mm-hmm. and um, and the client walks into his office with thirty lawyers, and uh, and and uh, and he and he says he, tell, he tells Ben, you know, he says, I'm going to need you twenty-four-seven. When I call, you pick up. And so Ben says, everything's good. It's just twenty-four-six. Mm-hmm. And he says, uh, so he says, there's going to be one day a week. He says, what happens if it's an emergency? So if it's an emergency, if it's an emergency, you'll send a fax to the office. There'll be somebody who will who will work out if it's a real emergency. He says. He says, but I, I don't answer the phone on Shabbos. So first Shabbos comes, he's sitting down to his Friday night, Friday night dinner, and the phone starts ringing. So you know the story very well. You were there, oh, so it's all the, oh, an eyewitness. And the phone, starts wi- the phone starts ringing. And the phone doesn't just start ringing. The phone goes on. How many times do you say it was? The whole meal. The, whole meal. The, 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 the phone was going on, going and going. Once the Shabbos, he finally goes back, and it's this individual. He calls me and says, what's going on? Everything right? He says, he says, he, he says, I'm so angry. He says, you just lost me 10 grand. I bet that you'll pick up the phone the first Shabbos. And Ben's statement at the end was, I worked so hard, if there wasn't a Shabbos in my life, I'd probably be dead now. Meaning, 
we worked so hard. If we didn't have that time where we could be disconnected, where the Rabbonim had, this, had the, the Chochmah, not just the technical Chochmah, but the sociological Chochmah to protect ourselves from ourselves, where would we be today? Baruch Hashem, this is the advent of the other side of the wisdom of electricity. Thank you very much. Thank you.